Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome, everybody. Um, my name is Gerwin. I'm one of the co-founders of National Sick Campaign. I'm here with my co-founder, Sean Singh and Valerie Kaur, uh, the infamous Valerie Kaur. Uh, Valerie is, I would say, one of the most unique sick Americans uh, in America. Uh, she's a civil rights activist, a lawyer, a filmmaker, uh, and just all around a phenomenal human being. She was actually very instrumental in helping getting National Sick Campaign started with her advice and uh, sage guidance in the very, very early days. And she has a new book out called See No Stranger. Everybody's probably going to have a hard time seeing this because I'm in a Zoom background. Uh, but I read this book. It is, it is really good, particularly uh, because of the era that we're in today uh, with the pandemic, uh, with the racial tensions, um, and so many, so many other issues. And before we kick it off to Valerie, you know, I think the best way to get an intro of her and her values and what she stands for is not me, uh, you know, blithering about it, uh, but really hearing her own words uh, from what is a, was a very remarkably touching and um, just extremely articulate speech that she gave several years ago. And I think that speech will tell you everything you need to know about Valerie. So we're going to take a minute and uh, listen to that, and, uh, and we'll get started with the conversation. Does that sound good with you, Valerie? I'm just so happy to be here with my brothers. So yes, it sounds good. Great. On Christmas Eve, 103 years ago, my grandfather waited in a dark and dank cell. He sailed by steamship across the Pacific Ocean from India to America, leaving behind colonial rule. But when he landed on American shores, immigration officials saw his dark skin, his tall turban worn as part of his sick faith, and saw him not as a brother, but as foreign, as suspect, threw him behind bars where he languished for months. Until a single man, a white man, a lawyer named Henry Marshall, filed a writ of habeas corpus that released him Christmas Eve, 1913. Mm. My grandfather, Kehar Singh, became a farmer, free to practice the heart of his sick faith, love and oneness. And so when his Japanese-American neighbors were rounded up and taken to their own detention camps in the deserts of America, he went out to see them when no one else would. He looked after their farms until they, reached, they returned home. He refused to stand down. That's right. In the aftermath of September 11th, when hate violence exploded in these United States and a man that I called uncle was murdered, mm. I tried to stand up. I became a lawyer like the man who freed my grandfather and I joined a generation of activists 
fighting, detentions and deportations, surveillance and special registration, hate crimes and racial profiling. And after 15 years, with every film, with every lawsuit, with every campaign, I thought we were making the nation safer for the next generation. Mama. And then my son was born. On Christmas Eve, I watched him ceremoniously put the milk and cookies by the fire for Santa Claus. And after he went to sleep, I then drank the milk and ate the cookies. I wanted him to wake up and see them gone in the morning. I wanted him to believe in a world that was magical. But I am leaving my son a world that is more dangerous than the one that I was given. Because I am raising, we are raising a brown boy in America. A brown boy who may someday wear a turban as part of his faith. And in America today, as we enter an, an era of enormous rage, as white nationalists hail this moment as their great awakening, as hate acts against Sikhs and our Muslim brothers and sisters are at an all-time high, I know, I know that there will be moments, whether on the streets or in the schoolyard, where my son will be seen as foreign, as suspect, as a terrorist. Just as black bodies are still seen as criminal, brown bodies are still seen as illegal, trans bodies are still seen as immoral, indigenous bodies are still seen as savage, the bodies of women and girls seen as someone else's property. And when we see these bodies, not as brothers and sisters, then it becomes easier to bully them, to rape them, to allow policies that neglect them, that incarcerate them, that kill them. Yes, Rabbi. The future is dark. On this New Year's Eve, this watch night, I close my eyes and I see the darkness of my grandfather's cell. And I can feel the spirit of ever-rising optimism in the Sikh tradition, Chardikala, within him. And so the mother in me asks, what if? What if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our America...
So powerful. I get chills every time I watch that video. Unbelievable. Uh, just the way the audience feeds off of you is, is remarkable. So that video was done after Trump's election. And a lot of the sentiments that, a lot of the sentiments that you shared, you know, really feel fresh at that point in time. And you say that America may be in a womb and that this is their our transition. It's been almost four years now. You know, how far along are we in our transition and have we made any progress since that speech? This question, is this darkness, the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? It is a question I have been asking myself every single day. It's never felt darker, right? And the answer that arises in me now is, is that it's both. It is both. When 135,000 people have been killed by a virus whose scale and scope was preventable if we had competent leadership, disproportionately black people, disproportionately brown people, when we see so many of our people continuing to die from hate violence and state violence and police killings, people we can't bring back. When we see George Floyd losing his life before our eyes, not one minute, not three minutes, but for eight minutes, a public lynching, we can't bring George Floyd back or Breonna Taylor or Rayshard Brooks or all of the people who continue to lose their life in a culture of white supremacy. So yes, it feels like the darkness of the tomb. There are times when I feel like I can taste ash in my mouth. And there's also a, um, a, a sort of story that we've been telling ourselves about America that is also dying. The story that we are a city on a hill, a nation of immigrants, the home of the free, the land of the brave, that story about who we thought we were, the story I even grew up with when I was growing up in California, that story is dying for so many millions of people now who are waking up to the reality of how white supremacist violence helped found the country and runs all the way through, that this president is not an aberration, that he is a continuation of what we just couldn't see before. We have so much to pick your brain about and we will get there, but you brought up your childhood in California. And I wanted to start this conversation with background about yourself so you can give our listeners an idea of, of who you are and, and what brought you to this point. And so most Sikhs who've been on our content, our podcast, our, our different you know, channels, and in the United States generally, are either immigrants themselves who came post-1960 or our first-generation Americans like Gerwin and myself. However, your family has been in America for more than 100 years. Can you share with our listeners your American story and, and how your life in America has, has shaped your, your activities today? My grandfather, when he settled in Clovis, it was a century, more than a century ago, um, he gave us this deep connection to the land. So I, was, I felt myself to be deeply connected to the peaches and the plums and the orchards and the apricots and the cows across the street and the horses across the road and the night sky that shimmered with stars. I just felt my deep roots in, in California and in 
uh, American history. And my grandfather, my dadaji, he survived the 1918 Spanish flu. He survived decades of racist laws. He survived all of that in my mind so that we could live free. And I sort of digested the, when I talked about that lie of the America that we thought we were living in, the lie is, is that America is already uh, the land that we dream it to be, but America is a nation that is still waiting to be born. It's a nation where, whose promise lies in its future. And so it wasn't until I was 20 years old, a college student, when September 11th happened, in the wake of the horror of those attacks, and so many acts of hate violence broke out on city streets across America, I, that was the first time that story began to shatter in my mind. And certainly since 2016, since this president took power. And so when I talk about the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb, there are moments when I feel that just as my grandfather did when he first arrived, that we are, we are willing through our actions, through our voices, through our struggles, we are birthing the America that we have always lifted up before our eyes. And right now, I've, I believe that we are in a revolutionary moment. I mean, millions of people flooding the streets like never before in our grief, in our rage, rising up for Black lives and racial justice. I and mean, we've never seen this before in the course of human history, a global uprising and solidarity for, for Black lives and, and social justice. And so I, I believe that that dichotomy that I was talking about the, the tomb and the womb, that any time that I can return to the spirit of Jardvikala, I can return to being able to see the darkness of the womb and trying to discern my labor in breathing and pushing for it the way that my grandfather did 100 years ago. Yeah, so I want to talk about your grandfather. I think there's a lot to even just unpack there, but I want to start from the beginning because when I read the book, you know, what struck me is how close you were with your grandfather. I was very close with my grandfather as well. And I also called him Papaji. So <laughs> even when you described your grandfather, it reminded me a lot of, of my grandfather. And so I know I kind of, I, I understood at a very visceral level what you were talking about when you described him and your experiences with him. Could you articulate how some of his teachings just continue to guide you in your life so many years after he's passed. He's, you know, I could say, at least from my own life, my grandfather who immigrated here uh, in the late 70s, his teachings to this day, you know, really impact me in some ways that, you know, I'm not even conscious of. When I asked us to imagine all of our ancestors standing behind us now, I imagined Papaji, just as you were imagining your Papaji, Gerwin. <laughs> <laughs> and I that's feel exactly like now, what I was imagining. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like if there is such a thing as ancestral trauma or intergenerational trauma, then there's got to be such a thing as ancestral wisdom or intergenerational resilience and bravery. And we as six, we have inherited in our bodies, in our blood, the bravery of our ancestors, of all of our papajis and our mamijis. Um, I, to, I think the best way to convey the role that my grandfather had in my life, I mean, my dadaji is the one who came at the turn of the century. He was the pioneer, but it was, and he died when I was young. So it was my nanaji who I called papaji, my mother's father. And uh, my earliest memories are these, I'm reading from See No Stranger. 
At night, Papaji would tuck me into bed with his hand on my forehead, stroking my hair. He recited his favorite Shabbat, Tati Vanalagi, the hot winds cannot touch you. There was a tremor in Papaji's voice, just as there was a tremor in his hands, and the tremor rose and fell, and he was always humming. The sacred music just resounded within him and spilled out when he parted his lips. And Papaji would always tell me his stories. He had worlds of stories in him, ancient stories he would bequeath to me in slivers, stories of gurus and saints, warriors and poets, soldiers and farmers, and these stories formed a long shimmering history that spanned centuries from India to America and ended with me. Vaheguru, Vaheguru, Papaji would say. It was our word for God, but he would say it throughout the day like it was a deep breath. Vahe is an expression of awe, and Guru is the light that dispels darkness. So even God's name was an expression of wonder at the divine around us. Papaji was also the bravest person I knew. You know, he survived the mass violence of the partition of 1947 in India. He survived the pogroms against Sikhs in 1984 in India. He pulled people out of danger. He kept his bhagri on the front lines, even when German air raids flew above him. And he always recited this Shabbat, Tat Divanalagi, Pad Brahmshanahi, Trogadhamare Ramkar, Dukhagenapai. It was his secret to his fearlessness, to his bravery. And so when I would come home from school after hearing my first racial slurs on the schoolyard, it was Papaji's prayer that returned me back into my body. And Gerwin, all of these years later, Papaji died a decade ago. All of these years later, I'm on the birthing table, birthing my babies, and my mother is whispering, Tati Manalagi, I'm about to step onto stage, and I feel so small and so scared. Like before I gave that watch night address, and I had to recite to myself, Tati Manalagi, and come forth and speak my full heart. On nights that are so dark, when we're getting news of the latest death toll or the people in our lives are grieving and they're dying alone and we can't help them, when it feels so hopeless and helpless, when I feel like I'm not brave enough, it's Papaji's prayer, Tati Vanalagi It just fills my lips. It, it returns me to the sense of Chardikala and that we are more than just who we are. We are our ancestors' greatest dream for us. And I feel them now. We can feel them now. And I think that's what can make us as six and anyone who can draw upon that strength so brave in this moment. Yeah, it's just like astonishing the, the parallels between our relationships uh, from our grandfathers and how we think about them. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I think our community definitely has an ethic that is rooted in a long tradition of people following in the spirit of certain principles, uh, equality, um, religious tolerance, and, you know, obviously, you know, we're human beings, so we, we always fall short too, but these, these values are definitely in the spirit of who we are, particularly um, resilience and charity glass. So um, I know, I know Sean's got another question here, so I'll, I'll let him ask. Well, I, I'm going to jump in and say oh, yeah, go ahead. about that. There's yeah. one more memory of Papaji I want to describe to you. He would always say, love is dangerous business. He would put up, love <laughs> is dangerous business. In America, we say, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'll talk, no action. Yeah. <laughs> love is about action, you know, and, 
and he was he was teaching me when Guru Nanak said, "If you want to play the game of love with me, come forth with your head on your palm." Yeah. I mean, this is not kind of some, some kind of soft, mushy, feel-good love. No, this is this is risky. This is discipline. This is dangerous. And the because if I if I believe in oneness, ik om God, and and I am I am I am um, committed to looking upon the face of everyone around me and saying, you are a part of me I do not yet know. You are a part of me I do not yet know. If I see you as my brother, then I must be willing to let your grief into my heart, and I must be willing to fight for you when you are in harm's way. And that's why, that's why I believe that we became Sansapai, sage warriors, warrior sages. The warrior fights, the sage loves. So I call it a path of, of revolutionary love. And this book, honestly, look, it's Nako Beri Nebagana, right? Guru Nanak said, Nako Beri Nebagana. There is no enemy. There is, I, I see no enemy. I see no stranger. This book is my contribution, my offering to um, take Guru Nanak's call to revolutionary love that our grandparents and grandmothers passed on to us and try to offer it for a new generation in a new time. Absolutely. And, and as Gerwin and I were texting each other as we were reading the book, we were talking about how, how well you weave Siki into the book and the narrative mm -hmm. and how you explain your, your stories and the way you feel through both Punjabi and Gurbani at the same time. And you, and you make it really connected and, and it feels as a Sikh you know, someone who had grown up in the faith, it, it just makes it so real and so vivid. And I really love that. That means the world to me. I can't tell you to come from my brothers. It means the world to me. And I also, I really hope that this is just, there's not one sick story or one, not one sick interpretation. May there be many, many sick stories. And may there be many of us who are taking our tradition and turning it into art and music and writing and poetry. And I see that in our generation. And I hope that this book just inspires and emboldens us to do even more than that. So I want, to hold, I want to hand my children, like, not just, you know, stranger. I want to hand them a treasure chest of, like, this is yeah. who we are. Right. <laughs> it, it, one, one other quick thing. It's more of a comment than, than anything. It, it, you know, when you talk about love is a lot of work. So we had a conversation with Sumerjeet uh, Singh, uh, I think you also know very well. And he gave a speech at the Mayor's Interfaith Breakfast in January, which feels like happened 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that was the central point that he made, which is when you are in an act of seva or service or love to somebody, it, it, it cannot be, um, it can't just be performative. And there must be, there, like you said, it's a danger. Like your grandfather said, it's a dangerous game, and uh, and I, I feel like we we are in an era of um, a golden age, sometimes of performative love, um, and um, you know, you know, we all all of us have to figure out a way to uh, ensure that we are following up what our Twitter posts, what our Instagram stories and Instagram uh, posts are, are, are articulating. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to eventually live what, what your grandfather says is a very dangerous game.
I believe that what our gurus called us to do is to practice that kind of love for everybody, <laughs> not just our own kin, not just our own babies, our own aunties and uncles, but for others who do not look like us, think about all the black people and the brown people and indigenous people in harm's way right now. What does it mean to love them with that kind of ferocity? What does it mean to fight even our opponents with love, to refuse to let anyone make us hate them, to still see their humanity? That's really hard. And what does it mean to love ourselves? We too often neglect taking care of our own bodies as if they were our own precious babies. What does it mean to love ourselves like that? Loving others, opponents, and ourselves, that's what I call the practices of revolutionary love. <laughs> and the best thing I, I think about your, your mission and, and why it's so relevant now is it's so easy for all of us, especially you know, six in America or even people of color in America or anyone really in this country who believes in you know, equality and some of the you know, principles that this country was built on, you can just say America's in trouble. This country needs a lot of work. It, it, you know, maybe it's too much work. But this book is saying, no, we need to fight. This is when we dig in deep. This is when all these bad pressures are pushing against us. This is when we have to get gritty and have revolutionary love, which I think is a message that's not being told enough. It's easy to just badmouth our country at this point, but to fix it is the hard work. And, and I, I appreciate that. And, and Sikhi gives us the vision for how to do it. I mean, the, the story that I loved when I was a kid was the story that Papaji would tell me over and over, the story of my Pago. You know, uh, in the 1700s, there was a great battle. Um, Forty soldiers abandoned their post. They returned to a village. They, they are, it's, too, it's too overwhelming. It's too difficult to show up to the fight. And this village woman turns to them and says, no, you will not abandon your post. You will return to the fire. You will return to the battlefield. And I will lead you. She dons a turban and she mounts a horse and with a sword in her hand and fire in her eyes, she leads them where no one else would. She becomes the one she is waiting for. And Papaji would tell me that story every time I would, you know, feel like giving up. And he would say, Beta, don't abandon your post. Don't abandon your post. And all these years later, Gerwin, Sean, I remember that. I mean, now there are nights that are so dark that I just... It's so hard <laughs> to keep showing up and keep So well, here's the thing. I think, I think that's absolutely right. So, I, you know, I think a lot of people are sitting at home. I certainly sit at home and, you know, I flip on the news or I scroll through Twitter and I feel like the world is on fire. And, and to, to a large degree, the world is on fire. Uh, we have the pandemic. We have the George Floyd protests. Uh, we have this complete and utter economic collapse that is, possibly going to even rival the Great Depression, um, people's lives, birthdays, funerals, graduations, uh, all upended. And, you know, there's a constant drum of falsehoods coming from the highest positions of the land. And how, how can we draw from those things that you're talking about? Because I think there is a feeling, and I feel it when I go out and walk, there is a tension, there's a feeling of desperation. Um, and how can we draw on some of the things that, you were that you're talking about? Because I think a lot of folks uh, have, you know, going to struggle with how, how to even begin with what you're saying. I remember the day of the memorial in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, in the wake of that 
horrific mass shooting in a Sikh Gurdwara at the hands of a white supremacist. I remember I was holding it together. I was there as an organizer, as a filmmaker. I was doing the work and I was trying to be so professional. And then they unveiled the caskets and I looked down into the faces of people who looked like us, looked like my Masis and Masers and Buas and Fufurs and Mamas and Mamis. And I just, at that point I had been, I had spent my entire adult life trying to prevent in Oak Creek, along with a generation of advocates. And it was Amr Bala, who was at the Sikh Coalition at the time, who saw me coming back from seeing the caskets. And I just, I took one look at Amr and finally, it was like, there was brother, right? He was my brother and I just lost it. And he like caught me <laughs> and we just wept together. And I said, Amr, what was it all for? What was it all for if not to prevent this, not to prevent the slaughter? And he looked at me and he said, we may not live to see the fruits of our labor in our lifetime, but our task is to keep showing up and to keep laboring and to be faithful to the labor. Gowen, I believe that hope is like a feeling that waxes and wanes. You know, sometimes I feel so very hopeful, fully charged. And then other times I feel like that moment or like some of these nights that we're in now, hope is like, I can't, I can't even see it. It's like a new moon. I know it's there, but I can't see it. I can't feel it. And on those nights, I, I think about what Jardikala really means and what I saw in Oak Creek. You know, I, I for a long time, I translated it as inter- eternal optimism, but I don't think it's about the future at all. I was an intern at USA Today when Oak Creek happened. And wow. I remember walking into the newsroom that day, that morning, and the breaking news editor is, is like running around just trying to see if anyone speaks Punjabi. And I'm like, wait, what? What language? Uh, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't speak the best. I speak okay. And they asked me to help interview victims' families. And I, I just remember it being so, like, hard it being so tough to have those conversations to try. Uh, and, and, and I just remember it being like an opportunity for someone like me or anyone to go out and do save and explain who we are, because clearly this is the issue. This is just a misunderstanding that has gone too far. And it, it really was my revolutionary love moment. And I think that's what connected me with Gerwin and Dr. Rajwant. And that's how we all came together and how the, this kind of brain trust formed and, and how the idea kind of sprouted and became what it is today. And this amazing organization that has people like you that come on and, and explain such amazing and profound ideas to all of us. I wanted to ask you, you know, something that I think is really relevant to our times now. Our, our you know, motto at the National State Campaign is to really call people in and, and not call them out. In our Funny or Die in video in many ways, it was a commentary on that, you know, overt political correctness that really can be problematic. So what do you make of these debates regarding social movements and whether they can be inclusive to people who are just not necessarily plugged into that jargon, are just trying to be better, but don't know necessarily how to? First, I just want to say that I have been so um, moved by watching all of your tireless work at the National Civic Campaign from the origins to today. And I remember the moment when I felt like you were really breaking new ground was when I saw that Funny or Die video for the first time. It was like we were portraying six not as victims or not as people who needed to be understood and, and, and needed to... Um, uh, prove their humanity. We were just fully human as we were <laughs> in that video. And I feel like 
to move from, hey, we're here and we're being victimized to we have something to offer the country. We have some teachings about what it looks like to fight for love and justice. It, 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 it uh, makes way for this wellspring of compassion. And that includes um, how we manage the kind of um, culture wars that we're in, in, in right now that I think, uh, especially among progressives, that it's not always a welcoming place for people who have sincere questions and earnest desires to try to stand up for justice in more meaningful ways. And I think that uh, we, we can do a better job of not demanding perfection, but accountability. And if we can create spaces, I mean, when Dr. King talked about the beloved community, it was not free of conflict. Like we can still wrestle with each other and disagree with each other and hold fast to our principles. There's no relinquishing what we believe to be true when we sit and listen to each other and help each other grow and understand each other. And I think if we anchor even our discourse in the ethic of love, we'll be able to see that and live into that more and more. I think so. And the one thing, we didn't show this, but you had a TED Talk a few years ago that I personally think is a perfect antidote to what Sean brought up, which is to, to look at your, your fellow human beings as brothers and sisters. And the reason why it hit me so profoundly was in a more hopeful time during the Obama years when I, when I served uh, for his administration, you know, I remember sitting in the subway going to work. And again, it was a very hopeful time that the feelings about race were really transforming uh, and people of color were starting to understand their roles in the country very differently. Um, because of being able to see another person of color ascend to the highest position in the land. And, you know, I looked around on the subway and I obviously you see people from all different walks of life in Washington, DC going to work. And I was like, these people are my brothers and my sisters at the end of the day. And I had that thought several times over the course of several years. And when you articulated it in your Ted talk, I think that, those lines, I, I think I heard it soon after, it was somewhere around after the, the, the Trump administration had started. It resonated with me so profoundly because that was ultimately, as Sean said, us trying to call people in and not just call them out. And we're calling them in because they're our brother and they're our sister. And I would love to, to get your sense of how, how, you, how you came to that. And... Uh, why you think it's so effective? Because I know it's effective. We have data to prove that this approach is effective. But I feel like that you arrived at this conclusion from your own activism and and your own spiritual place. This too was on the lips of Guru Nanak. What did he say? What did he mean when he said... I see no stranger. To expand the circle of who counts as part of our human family, to not leave any one of us out, that was the revolutionary path that he called us on. And it's an ancient path. And I'll I'll read this from the book. Um, It echoes down to us on the lips of indigenous leaders, spiritual teachers, and social formers through the centuries. 
Guru Nanak called us to see no stranger, Buddha to practice compassion for all, Jesus to love our neighbors, Muhammad to take in the orphan, Mirabai to love without limit. They all expanded the circle of who counts as one of us and therefore who is worthy of our care and concern. This is a difficult thing to practice, to love beyond what evolution requires. It has always been a dangerous thing to ask people to do, a hard thing to ask people to do. And what I am so um, inspired by in this moment is that I see our generation of six, sick Americans, really living into, in ways that I've never seen before, Guru Nanak's call to be Sansapai, warrior sages for a new time. When I see so many Sikhs holding up signs, marching in the street for black lives, when I see us standing at Standing Rock, when I see us at the airports protesting the Muslim ban, I say, oh, we are, we are showing America what it looks like to dedicate your, your life to love. And I think that if we can um, model it and share it, and inspire it and embolden it, we won't only be critical in birthing the nation that longs to be born, we will also be um, liberating the Sikh community in ways that we have tried to do for the last century. To the extent to the things you talked about with Guru Nanak, and I actually, I did not know this story, but I, I heard it within the last few weeks about Guru Nanak, the extent to which you practice this. And so Guru Nanak was traveling um, because he was trying to spread his message of equality. And um, he wanted to stay at a person's house named Sajjan. He, he eventually became known as Sajjan the Thug uh, many years later. The word Thug is actually um, either Hindi or Punjabi word, which I actually I didn't even know that. And um, he, he, Sajjan was pretending to be like a Guru Nanak figure where he was welcoming to everybody he had a mosque in his house, and he had a, a Hindu temple in his house, and um, Guru Nanak wanted to go stay with him. But the thing with Sajjan was he was just he was just a charade. What he would do is he would kill the people that stayed with him and take their stuff, and he would acquire this wealth. And you know, people within the community just thought he was this wealthy guy that was extremely generous. And so Guru Nanak goes to stay there, and he tries to kill him. And um, Guru Nanak was you know, points out the inconsistencies of his um, reputation and his actions that he was about to do. And the legend has it, I guess, is that he convinced Sajjan, he's like, listen, you're not, what you're doing is wrong. And it's not living up to the own values that you've been telling everybody. Um, and Sajjan listened to him and at Sajjan's house, the same place where, again, where he would murder people, Guru Nanak forgave him, and he asked him to set it up as a place where truly anyone can go, get rest, listen to the, um, you know, practice their spiritual faith that they were. And many people consider it as the first Gudwara. There was, I guess the term Gudwara didn't even exist at that time, but that effectively became the first Gudwara ever. A, a, a uh, story basically of a man that was forgiven for his sins to then be asked to be open to everybody. And when I, I live through my own life and I hear, you know, obviously I get my own frustrations by um, hearing so much intolerance and seeing so much intolerance. 
I have to continuously remind myself that um, it is possible for people to, to be redeemed and to become more open-minded. Um, and it started with, actually, it, from our own faith, from the very first Kudwara, our very first spiritual center. So, this is a Janam Saki I did not know. And I am really no excited. I did not know that. I was like, my heroes. I have, a, I have a book of Guru Nanak bedtime stories, literally <laughs> in my apartment. And, and I don't know why I have them. I promise you, I don't know what the reason is. But we all have I them. Will, I have mine somewhere too. <laughs> I definitely have them in my room. They're like a page long and they always have a great moral. And I, I sometimes peruse them a little bit, but that was awesome story. <laughs> Well, what, what, what I'm so um, captivated by in that story uh, is that uh, Sajjan is, um, is the United States. <laughs> like we have told ourselves a story, we've told the world a story of our goodness and our greatness. In the meantime, we committed genocide in order to populate this land and colonized a people and continue to colonize them and turn a blind eye. And then we built our wealth on the backs of black people who were slaves and then slavery transmuted into segregation, into Jim Crow, into mass incarceration today. And we continue to tell the story, the lie, you know. And what is so beautiful to me about that act of transformation is that I believe that that's possible. I 100%. That, I, I didn't make that connection, but that is a, that's a phenomenal <laughs> connection, yeah. There's a, there's, I'll read you this passage from the book. And just think of Sajjan as you're, as you're hearing this passage. America, too, had committed assaults on people it claimed to care about. America, too, had told itself a story of its own goodness. America, too, had suppressed memories and histories of the traumas it had caused. America, too, could not confront the ways those assaults ran through generational lines or how oppression took new forms in the present. America, too, did not know how to reconcile the dark parts of its history with the nation it aspired to be. America needs to reconcile with itself and do the work of apology like Sajjan did to try to say to indigenous black and brown people, we take full ownership for what we did to say, we owe you everything to say, we see how harm runs through generations to say, we own this legacy and will not harm you again to promise the non-repetition of harm would require nothing less than transitioning the nation as a whole. And it would mean retiring the old narrative about who we are, a city on the hill, and embracing a new narrative of an America longing to be born, a nation whose promise lies in the future, restructuring our institutions and letting those who have been most harmed be the ones to lead us through the transition. What do we do today, here and now, to go forward and improve this country uh, as sick Americans or as all Americans? We show up, we show up no matter how tired we are, how breathless we are, how overwhelming it feels, how hopeless we may feel. Take time to rest and sleep and drink water. I have a very big hot pink water bottle because I forget to drink water. Like, you have to take care of your body, right? Take care of your yes, loved ones, stay healthy in this time, wear a mask, all the things, and, and find a way to show up for all the people who are suffering right now who need us to show up for them. And, and our gurus also gave us the tools for how, right? Sword, we have a kirpan. I think about, you know, what is our modern day kirpan? My kirpan is my pen. <laughs> what is my doll? What is my shield? My shield is my camera. My shield is my law degree. 
what, who is your Sangat? We don't go into battle alone. So who is your Sangat? You, my brothers, are my Sangat. Like I battle alongside my six sisters and brothers and siblings and other advocates who help me breathe and push and stay in the labor and lead me back like my Bago did when I wanted dessert, right? We, we need each other. We need our Sangats to show up. And, and one of my favorite stories um, is a legend. And I don't know if it's true, but the story is that Guru Gobind Singh Ji designed the Dilraba, a Sikh instrument, small enough for his soldiers to wear on their backs so that they could play the Shabbats and sing the Shabbats, sing Kirtan before they went into battle. So I physically got a Dilraba. <laughs> like, like after this president took power, I'm like, I need to up my like game here. And so just Virkor Rabadvin was my sixth sister and she just put it in my hands and she said, this is your inheritance my love, if you want to be a, a my, my bago for this time, we all need to be my bagos for this time. This is what you need. And so I play the Dilraba. I can only do the scale. It's very beautiful, but it's just the scale. <laughs> That's all you need. Um, That's all you really need. It's enough, right? Yeah. So I like, what is your Dilraba? Is it, is it yoga? Is it meditation? Is it singing? Is it dancing? What returns you to Chardikala? So those four things, like what is your kapan? What is your sword? What is your dal? What is your shield? What is your, who is your sangat? Who's going to have your back? And what is your dilraba so that you can stay in the labor? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And there's also that every single person has their own version of it. Yes. It's funny, like everyone can do seva in their own way. I, yes. I'm a marketing guy. That was my business degree. And I was like, how could that help the sick community? The next thing you know, hey, maybe this is the way Gerwin's at the White House doing uh, who knows what. But he figured, you know, I'll take that career and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll find a way to improve our community. And I think everybody can do that. I think everybody can do that in their own community if they're not sick. And, and how they decide to do that can be unique to their own, themselves. Yes, every single one of us has a role in the labor of revolutionary love. But we can actually have to only practice it together in community as part of movement. And when Guru called us to a path of, of, of love and justice, it was not just a, a something to hold up here as a belief, right? Sikhi, it's not Sikhism, it's Sikhi. It's not a belief to, to, to hold. It is a way of being in the world. It is spontaneous and it's organic. It's an orientation to life that is political and it's personal. It's everything. It's a way of moving through the world. And so we as Sikhs, I think, are poised to live even more deeply into those teachings because right now the world needs us to. It needs us to. How, what is your advice the young six who want to become the next Valerie Core, because I I know quite a few quite a few that do. So, what is your secret sauce? Don't become the next Valerie Core. Become the bravest version of you, because that's what the world needs. You have an unmistakable magic that only you can offer the world, that no one else can. And I think my life, my entire life, has been a struggle in my mind between two voices. I want to call one of them the little, the little critic. You know, Guru Nanak calls it home, the eye that names itself against others, the eye that is the ego that is scared, that voice in me. Oh my goodness. Since I was a kid, that voice in me would tell me that you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not fair enough. You're not beautiful enough. You're not American enough or white enough. You're not sick enough. You don't speak Punjabi well enough. <laughs> you're not enough. You're not, you're not enough to do all the things that you want to do. So you better get small. Get small, keep your head down, keep your voice, don't, your voice is shaking, just don't speak at all. Like that voice has been in my head since like the first racial slur I ever heard when I was a kid. And, 
and it's been a power struggle between that voice and when Papaji said, don't abandon your post, Beta, he saw me. I was a little girl in two long braids, right? But he saw me as a warrior. He saw me as a warrior. And that power that he projected into me gave rise to what I, I think of as the wise woman. There's a wise woman in me, the warrior woman in me, the maipago in me who says, oh, my love, you are brave enough. And that's what I want to tell every young person, every sick out there who feels those voices inside of them, that struggle inside of them. Oh, my love, you are brave enough to do this. You are brave enough to show up. And that's all you have to be is brave enough. Uh, no, I mean, I think, I think that those are good words to, to leave everyone with. I feel like we can go for another hour because there's so many questions I still have that, that they, these are such a reservoir of knowledge and, and wisdom here. But uh, the book is See No Stranger. Get it anywhere. Go to seenostranger.com yep. and go to seenostranger.com and you can get it anywhere. I I recorded the audiobook and I even like I Oh wow. It. When authors record the audiobook, it's really special. Yeah, and you see at the very back of the book there's a selection of six shabbids and I recorded the audiobook in my closet. Like cuz it's oh, wow. what you do and my mother my mother was on the line. She's like, no, Valerie, no, better say it again. Like, she's the just right. So I hope it's okay. But if you get the audiobook, you hear me read the stories and you, and you hear the Shabbos at the end too. Awesome. Hey, Valerie, <laughs> Valerie one, one last question before we uh, let you go. You know, after this book tour is done and, you know, things moving on, what's next for you and what's next for the Revolutionary Love Project? What, what's, what's uh, on your radar? Oh, I, I now that I've found Revolutionary Love, it is the song I will be singing for the rest of my life. And there's so much to do. <laughs> there's so much to do to, uh, to equip artists and activists and faith leaders and educators and people of faith and people of no, to equip a new generation to practice these tools. Um, you know, I, I, I believe that revolutions happen in these big grand public moments, but they also happen in the, in the spaces where people come together to, to inhabit a new way of being. And so our vision is, is to seed pockets of revolutionary love across the country, around the world, where people are coming together to practice, um, practice love together. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. And uh, we, we appreciate you. And uh, uh, make sure you guys buy the book. See you guys. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, subscribe to Sick Meets World on your favorite podcasting platform, and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for our next episode, which comes out next month, and of course, be sure to check out the National Sick Campaign website for more information.